Hi listeners, on today's episode we bring you an excerpt from First Steps, How Upright Walking Made Us Human by Jeremy DeSilva, read by Kaleo Griffith, courtesy of HarperCollins Publishers. Introduction There's an old story about a centipede who was asked which particular set of legs he used to start walking. The question took him by surprise. What had seemed a perfectly normal means of progression became a wholly perplexing problem. He could scarcely move. I'm faced with a similar difficulty when I try to account for, not how I walk, but why. John Hillaby Explorer The year 2016 set a record for kills in the annual hunt to cull the swelling population of black bears roaming free in rural and suburban New Jersey. Of the 636 taken, 635 were dispatched with only a few howls of protest from animal lovers. But when news broke that one particular bear was dead, there was outrage. The killing was called an assassination. The hunter thought to be responsible received death threats. Some advocated that he, too, should be hunted and killed. Others called for his castration. Why such fury over one dead bear? Because he walked on two legs. Since 2014, New Jersey residents had occasionally seen the young male bear strolling down suburban streets and through backyards on two legs, a form of locomotion called bipedalism. Although he fed on all fours, an injury prevented him from putting weight on his front limbs, so to move, he reared up and walked upright. They called him Petals. I never saw Petals walk when he was alive, but as a scientist fascinated by upright walking in my own species, I wish I had. Fortunately, there are YouTube videos of him. One has over a million views, another over four million. At first glance, he looked like a man in a bear suit, but once he started moving, the differences between his gait and a human's were clear. Petal's back legs were much shorter than mine. He shuffled in quick, short steps, remaining rigid from hips to shoulders as his clawed feet skimmed the ground. It reminded me of a panicked person desperately searching for a toilet. Petals couldn't walk upright for long before dropping down on all fours. We are drawn to animals when they behave like us. We post videos of goats yelling like humans and Siberian huskies howling, I love you. We are amazed by crows sledding down rooftops and chimpanzees giving hugs. They remind us of our kinship with the rest of the natural world. Perhaps more than any other behavior, though, we are awestruck by bouts of bipedalism. Plenty of animals rise on two legs to scan the horizon or strike an intimidating pose. But humans are the only mammals that walk on two legs all the time. When another animal does it, we are mesmerized. In 2011, news spread that a male silverback lowland gorilla named Ambam at the Palace of the Apes at Port Lim Reserve 
occasionally walked on two legs around his Kent, England enclosure. Soon, he was featured on CBS, NBC, and the BBC. Upright walking gorilla mania struck again in early 2018 when Lewis, a large male gorilla, began walking around his Philadelphia zoo enclosure on two legs because, according to many, he didn't like to get his hands dirty. Faith the dog was born without one front limb and had the other amputated when she was seven months old. Thanks to a dedicated family that used treats to entice her to hop, she became a capable biped. She visited thousands of wounded soldiers and appeared on Oprah. And in 2018, a video of a bipedal octopus circulated on social media. It used just two of its legs to propel itself along a sandy seafloor. By our surprised reactions to upright walking in bears, dogs, gorillas, and even octopuses, we reveal how human this behavior is. When humans do it, it is ordinary. It is, you might say, pedestrian. We are the only striding bipedal mammals on Earth. And for good reason. In the following pages, these reasons will become clear. It is a remarkable journey, which I've organized along these lines. Part 1 investigates what the fossil record tells us about the origin of upright walking in the human lineage. Part 2 explains how it was a prerequisite for changes that define our species, from our large brains to the way we parent our children, and how those changes allowed us to expand from our ancestral African homeland to populate the Earth. Part 3 explores how the anatomical changes required for efficient upright walking affect the lives of humans today, from our first steps as babies to the aches and pains we experience as we age. The conclusion examines how our species managed to survive and thrive despite the many downsides of walking on two, rather than four, legs. Come, take a walk with me. Chapter 1 How We Walk Walking is falling forward. Each step we take is an arrested plunge, a collapse averted, a disaster braked. In this way, to walk becomes an act of faith. Paul Salopek, journalist, at the start of his 10-year, 20,000-mile journey in the footsteps of our early ancestors from their African homeland to the ends of the earth. December 2013 Let's face it, humans are weird. Although we are mammals, we have comparatively little body hair. While other animals communicate, we talk. Other animals pant, but we sweat. We have exceptionally large brains for our body size and have developed complex cultures. But perhaps, oddest of all, Humans navigate the world perched on fully extended hind limbs. The fossil record indicates that our ancestors started walking on two legs long before they evolved other uniquely human features, including large brains and language. Bipedal walking on the ground started our lineage on its unique path shortly after our ape-like ancestors split from the chimpanzee lineage. Even Plato recognized the uniqueness and the importance of upright walking defining the human as a two-footed, featherless animal. According to legend, 
Diogenes the Cynic was not pleased with Plato's description, and, with a plucked chicken in hand, he disparagingly revealed Plato's man. Plato responded by tweaking his definition of humans to include with flat nails, but held fast to the biped part. Bipedalism has since made its way into our words, expressions, and entertainment. Think of the many ways we describe walking. We stroll, stride, plod, traipse, amble, saunter, shuffle, tiptoe, lumber, tromp, lope, strut, and swagger. After walking all over someone, we might be asked to walk a mile in his shoes. Heroes walk on water, while geniuses are walking encyclopedias. To humanize animated television characters, cartoonists draw them standing and walking on two legs. Mickey Mouse, Bugs Bunny, Goofy, Snoopy, Winnie the Pooh, SpongeBob SquarePants, and Brian the Dog from Family Guy all walk bipedally. In a lifetime, the average non-disabled person will take about 150 million steps, enough to circle the Earth three times. But what is bipedalism, and how do we do it? Researchers often describe bipedal walking as a controlled fall. When we lift a leg, gravity takes over and pulls us forward and down. Of course, we don't want to fall on our faces, so we catch ourselves by extending our leg forward and planting our foot on the ground. At that point, our bodies are physically lower than they were at the start of our journey, so we need to raise ourselves upward again. The calf muscles in our legs contract and raise our center of mass. We then lift the other leg, swing it forward, and fall again. As primatologist John Napier wrote in 1967, Human walking is a unique activity during which the body, step by step, teeters on the edge of catastrophe. The next time you look at a person from the side as he or she walks, notice how the head dips and then rises with each stride. This wave-like pattern characterizes our controlled fall form of walking. Of course, walking is not this clunky, and it's not this simple. To get technical for a moment, when we raise our center of mass by contracting our leg muscles, we store potential energy. When gravity takes over and pulls us forward, it converts the stored potential energy into kinetic energy, or motion. By taking advantage of gravity, we save 65% of the energy we would use otherwise. This tick-tocking of potential energy to kinetic energy is how pendulums work. Human walking can be thought of that way as an inverted pendulum that resembles a metronome. Is this any different from how other animals walk when they rear up on two legs? It turns out, the answer is yes. As a PhD student, I spent a month with wild chimpanzees in Kabali Forest National Park in western Uganda. There, I met Berg. He was a large male in the Ngogo community of chimpanzees that numbered about 150 an unusually large group of apes. He was on the older side, his head hair receding a bit, and his black coat flecked with patches of gray on his lower back and calves. Berg was not a high-ranking male, but occasionally he experienced a surge of testosterone. His hair puffed out, and he gave a booming pant hoot that echoed through the forest. When he did this, it was best for humans to step out of his way.
Berg would grab a branch from the forest floor or tear one from a nearby tree, stand upright, and walk through the understory on just two legs. But he didn't move like I do. Instead, his knees and his hips were bent, the crouched kind of walk comically performed by Groucho Marx in A Day at the Races, another Marx Brothers films. Unable to balance on a single leg, Berg wobbled from side to side as he racelessly crashed through the forest. It was an energetically expensive form of travel, and he tired quickly, dropping to all fours after about a dozen steps. Humans, in contrast, are not crouched over. We stand with extended knees and hips. Our quadriceps muscles do not have to do as much work as a chimpanzee's when they walk on crouched legs. Muscles positioned on the sides of our hips allow us to balance on a single leg without tipping over. We walk gracefully and with much more energetic efficiency than Berg did. But why did these changes to our anatomy happen? Why did this unusual form of locomotion evolve? Let's start our journey by considering bipedalism in the fastest human on the planet. In 2009, Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt set the men's world record in the 100-meter dash at 9.58 seconds. Between the 60- and 80-meter mark, he maintained a peak speed of nearly 28 miles per hour for about 1.5 seconds. But by the standards of other mammals in the animal kingdom, this human speed demon is pathetically slow-footed. Cheetahs, the fastest land mammals, exceed 60 miles per hour. Cheetahs do not typically hunt humans, but lions and leopards, who occasionally do, top out at 55 miles per hour. Even their prey, including zebras and antelopes, can flee snapping jaws at 50 to 55 miles per hour. In other words, the predator-prey arms race in Africa currently stands at no less than 50 miles per hour. That's how fast most predators run, and how fast most prey try to escape. Except for us. Usain Bolt not only could not flee from a leopard, he couldn't catch a rabbit. The fastest among us runs at half the speed of an antelope. By moving on two legs rather than four, we've lost the ability to gallop making us exceptionally slow and vulnerable. Bipedalism also makes our gait somewhat unstable. Sometimes our graceful, controlled fall is not controlled at all. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 35,000 Americans die annually from falling, nearly the same number who die in car accidents. But when's the last time you saw a four-legged animal a squirrel, dog, or cat, trip and fall. Being slow and unstable seems like a recipe for extinction, especially given that our ancestors shared the landscape with the large, fast, hungry ancestors of today's lions, leopards, and hyenas. Yet, here we are. So, surely there must be advantages to bipedalism that outweigh the costs. The great film director Stanley Kubrick thought he knew what these were. In Kubrick's 1968 film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, a group of hairy apes gather around a watering hole on a dry African savanna. One of them looks inquisitively at a large bone lying on the ground. He picks it up, holds it like a club, and gently taps the scatter of bones around him. 
Strauss's 1896 Also Sprach Zarathustra, Opus 30, begins to play. Horns. Da, 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 da. Bass drum. Dum, 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 dum. The ape imagines wielding the bone as a tool, a tool to kill. The furry beast rises on two legs and slams the weapon down, shattering bones and symbolically clubbing a meal, or an enemy, to death. That's how Kubrick imagined the dawn of man. He and his co-writer, Arthur C. Clarke, were dramatizing what was then a widely accepted model for human origins and the beginning of upright walking. This model is still with us, and it is almost certainly wrong. It postulates that bipedalism evolved in a savanna environment to free the hands to carry weapons. It asserts that humans are, and always have been, violent. These ideas go all the way back to Darwin. Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species, 1859, is one of the most influential books ever written. Darwin didn't invent evolution. Naturalists have been discussing the changeability of species for decades. His great contribution was to present a testable mechanism for how populations changed and continue to change over time. He called this mechanism natural selection, although most of us know it as survival of the fittest. More than 150 years later, there's ample evidence that natural selection is a strong driver of evolutionary change. Almost from the beginning, Skeptics howled at the implication that human beings descended from apes. But in origin, Darwin had written almost nothing about the evolution of his own species. He simply wrote in the penultimate page of the book that light will be thrown on the origin of man and his history. Nevertheless, Darwin was thinking about humans. Twelve years later, in The Descent of Man, 1871, he hypothesized that humans possess several interrelated traits. He asserted we are the only apes that use tools. We know now he was wrong, but Jane Goodall's observation that chimpanzees at Gombe Stream National Park in Tanzania make and use tools was still 90 years away. However, Darwin correctly posited that humans are the only fully bipedal ape and that we have unusually small canine or fang teeth. To Darwin, these three human attributes, tool use, bipedalism, and small canines, were linked. As he saw it, individuals who moved on two legs could free their hands for tool use. Thanks to tools, they no longer needed large canine teeth to compete with rivals. Ultimately, he thought, this suite of changes led to an increase in brain size. But Darwin was working with the handicap. He had no access to first-hand accounts of wild ape behavior, data that didn't start trickling in until a century later. Furthermore, in 1871, there wasn't a single known early human fossil from the African continent, the place of origin for our lineage as we understand it now, and even as Darwin predicted a century and a half ago. The only pre-modern human fossils known to Darwin were a few Neanderthal bones from Germany misidentified by some scholars at the time, as diseased Homo sapiens. Without the benefit of a fossil record or accurate behavioral observations of our closest living ape relatives, Darwin did the best he could in proposing a testable scientific hypothesis for why humans walk on two legs. 
Data required to test his idea started surfacing in 1924, when a young Australian professor named Raymond Dart, a brain expert at the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa, obtained a crate of rocks from a mining operation near the town of Taung, nearly 300 miles southwest of Johannesburg. He opened the crate and noticed that one of the rocks contained the fossilized skull of a juvenile primate. Dart used his wife's knitting needles to extract the skull from the surrounding limestone. As he did, he saw that the skull belonged to a strange primate. For one thing, the town child, as it would come to be known, had tiny canine teeth, quite unlike those in baboons and apes. But the real clues were lurking in the child's fossilized brain. My primary research interests are the foot and leg bones of our ancestors. But historically and aesthetically, no other fossil can match the town child's skull. In 2007, I traveled to Johannesburg, South Africa to examine it. The curator there is my friend Bernard Zipfel, a former podiatrist who became a paleoanthropologist after he grew tired of fixing people's bunions. One morning, he retrieved a small wooden box from the vault. It was the same box Dart used to house his precious tongue nearly a century earlier. Zipfel carefully removed the fossilized brain and placed it in my hands. After this little hominin died, the brain decayed and mud filled the skull. As millennia passed, the sediment hardened into an endocast, a replica of the brain. It faithfully duplicated the size and shape of the original brain and even preserved details of the folds, fissures, and external cranial arteries. The anatomical detail is exquisite. I carefully turned the fossil brain over to reveal a thick layer of sparkling calcite. Light reflected from it as if it were a geode, not an ancient human fossil. I hadn't expected town to be so beautiful. The preservation of the folds and fissures of the brain was a remarkable stroke of luck, because Dart knew brain anatomy as well as anyone in the world. He was, after all, a neuroanatomist. His studies revealed that the town child's brain was about the size of an adult ape's, but had lobes organized more like a human's. The endocast fit perfectly, like a puzzle piece, into the backside of Taung's skull. I turned the skull slowly to peer into this 2.5 million-year-old child's eye sockets, the closest I could come to seeing an ancient hominin eye to eye. When I rotated the skull to examine the underside, I saw what Dart had observed in 1924. The foramen magnum, the hole through which the spinal cord passes, was located directly under the skull as it is in humans. When alive, little Taung held its head atop a vertical spine. In other words, Taung was bipedal. In 1925, Dart announced that the fossilized skull was from a species brand new to science. He called it Australopithecus africanus, meaning southern ape from Africa, following the traditional way in which scientists classify and name animals by genus and species. Domestic dogs, for instance, are all members of the same species, but they are also part of a larger group, or genus, of related animals, including wolves, coyotes, and jackals. 
all the members of that genus are part of a still larger and more distantly related group, or family, that includes wild dogs, foxes, and many species of extinct wolf-like carnivores. We and our ancestors are classified in the same way. Modern humans are all members of the same species, but we are also the lone survivors of a genus that once included other human-like groups, such as Neanderthals. Our genus, Homo, which made its first appearance about 2.5 million years ago, evolved from a species that was part of another genus, called Australopithecus. All members of Homo and Australopithecus, in turn, are hominids, the name for a family of related animals that includes many of the existing and extinct great apes, such as chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas. Animals are referred to by their genus name followed by their species name. For example, humans are Homo sapiens, dogs are Canis familiaris, and the town child is Australopithecus africanus. More important than the name, though, was Dart's interpretation of this fossil. He hypothesized that it was not an ancestral chimpanzee or gorilla, but rather an extinct relative of humans. While the scientific community debated the importance of the town discovery, another South African paleontologist, Robert Broom, searched for more Australopithecus fossils in caves northwest of Johannesburg in an area known today as the Cradle of Humankind. Throughout the 1930s and late 1940s, he used dynamite to blast through the hard cave walls. He then picked through the rubble, searching for the remains of our ancestors. Today, there are still large piles of cave debris, many chunks containing fossils, at the openings of these caves. They are called broom piles. While paleoanthropologists today cringe at his crude approach, Broom discovered dozens of fossils from two different kinds of hominins. One form, which he called Paranthropus robustus, had large teeth and bony attachments for enormous chewing muscles. The other, a slender form with smaller teeth and smaller chewing muscles, appeared to match darts Australopithecus africanus. In a cave called Sterkfontein, Broom recovered a fossilized vertebral column a pelvis, and two knee bones that demonstrated that Australopithecus africanus walked on two legs. We now know from radiometric dating techniques on the uranium trapped in the limestone of the cave that these fossils are between 2.0 and 2.6 million years old. Meanwhile, Dart was excavating fossils at a Makapanskat cave northeast of the Cradle of Humankind. There, he discovered a small number of ancient human fossils that he regarded as different enough from his precious town child to be named a new species. He called the Makapanskat hominin Australopithecus prometheus, after the Greek titan responsible for bringing fire to humankind. Because many fossilized animal bones discovered near the human fossils were charred and appeared to have been deliberately burned. Furthermore, Dart discovered a peculiar damage pattern on the animal fossils. They had been shattered. Leg bones from large antelopes were broken in a manner that made them sharp and dagger-like. Jaws were broken in a way that one could imagine them being used as cutting tools. Dart found antelope horns that could be gripped 
and used as weapons. Scattered throughout the Magapanskat cave were dozens of smashed antelope and baboon skulls, seemingly the victims of a violent encounter with Australopithecus. In 1949, Dart published his findings, proposing that Australopithecus had developed a culture that he eventually called osteodontokaratic, combining Greek words for bone, tooth, and horn. Expanding on Darwin's ideas, he argued that the inventors of this culture used these weapons to attack other animals and one another. Before joining the University of the Witwatersrand faculty, Dart had been a medic in the Australian Army. He had spent much of 1918 in England and France, witnessing the final year of World War I. He likely had cared for soldiers with bullet wounds and burned lungs from exposure to mustard gas. Two decades later, Dart could only watch as the world around him burned again. It is no wonder that after witnessing two world wars, Dart reasoned that humans must have had violent origins and believed he had found evidence of that at Makapanskat. Dart's ideas about human violence and the origins of upright walking were popularized by author Robert Ardrey in his 1961 international bestseller, African Genesis. Just seven years later, Kubrick's ape men were smashing bones to the tune of Strauss's Also Sprach Zarathustra Opus 30. Darts's former student, Philip Tobias, was even on the set of 2001, directing humans in ape costumes to act like a violent Australopithecus. But quietly, in a laboratory in the Ditsong National Museum of Natural History in Pretoria, South Africa, Dart's ideas were unraveling. Charles Kimberlin, Bob Brain, was a young scientist with an exquisite eye for detail. In the 1960s, he re-examined some of Dart's tools and found that they matched bones that had been naturally damaged or broken by the powerful jaws of leopards and hyenas. It appeared that Dart had misinterpreted these fossils. They had not been deliberately smashed by early humans. Furthermore, the burned animal bones turned out to have been charred by a brush fire before a rainstorm washed them into the Magapanskat cave to be fossilized. Dart's Australopithecus prometheus was not the firebringer after all. Scientists also could not find enough anatomical differences between Australopithecus prometheus and Africanus to justify calling them two distinct species, so Prometheus was absorbed into Africanus. Meanwhile, Brain resumed excavations begun years earlier by Broom at a cave called Swartkrans in the Cradle of Humankind. There, he discovered a juvenile Australopithecus skull fragment that was given the catalog name SK-54. A few days after seeing the town child, I traveled to the Ditsong Museum in Pretoria to study fossils from Swartkrans Cave. The collections manager, Stephanie Potsy, took me into the broom room, a small red-carpeted space lined with glass cases that hold some of the most important human fossils ever discovered. The broom room has the feel of a quaint antique shop. There, Potsy placed SK-54 in my hands. It is a thin and delicate fossil, light brown in color, with occasional black patches of manganese. I was immediately struck by two circular holes about an inch apart in the back of the skull. Inside, the bone is twisted 
as if it had been punctured by a can opener. Potsy then handed me the lower jaw of an ancient leopard, also recovered at Swartkron's. Go ahead, she said. As many have done before me, I gently placed the leopard's fangs against the holes in the back of SK-54's skull. They were a perfect match. These ancestors of ours were not the hunters. They were hunted. In the last few decades, a host of early human fossils with bite impressions left by ancient leopards, saber-toothed cats, hyenas, and crocodiles have been discovered. A reanalysis of the town child found that Dart's famous discovery has talon marks in its eye sockets. A bird of prey, probably a crowned eagle, must have plucked the town child from the ground and carried it off to be eaten. As so often happens in science, even the most elegant and accepted ideas wither in the face of new evidence. Even though it persists in popular culture, man the hunter, who needed free hands for tools and weapons, no longer explains our bipedal origins. Why then did this strange form of locomotion first evolve? Some scholars doubt we can ever know. The fact that we are the only mammal that walks upright, it turns out, makes the mystery especially difficult to solve, but all the more fascinating. Here's why. Lots of animals, from sharks and trout to squid and dolphins, swim. Even extinct reptiles called ichthyosaurs swam. Yet these animals aren't closely related at all. A dolphin is more closely related to you and me than to these other animals, and an ichthyosaur was more closely related to a falcon than to a fish. Yet their body shapes are stunningly similar. Why? Because it turns out that there's a best way to swim. The ancestors of those sharks, ichthyosaurs, and dolphins, with shapes best suited for moving through water, swam faster, ate more fish, and had more offspring. How could unrelated aquatic animals have such similar shapes? Because through natural selection, a streamlined body, the best solution for moving rapidly in the water, evolved multiple times. This is something that has happened over and over again in nature. For example, bats, birds, and butterflies all invented wings. Neurotoxins for poisoning prey evolved independently in snakes, scorpions, and sea anemones. Scientists call this convergent evolution. Can convergent evolution help us explain bipedalism? If we rely just on mammals living today, then the answer is no, because we're the only mammals that do it. If other mammals regularly walked on two legs, we could study them to figure out how bipedalism helps them survive. Does it make it easier for them to gather food? Did it provide some advantage in the long-ago habitats they lived in? Could it have been some sort of mating strategy? Answering these questions on hypothetical bipedal mammals would provide some important clues for why ancient humans evolved this form of locomotion. But because there aren't any other upright walking mammals to study, weeding out the reasonable hypotheses from the outrageous ones is especially difficult. Perhaps then we should peer deeper into the past, to the time of the dinosaurs. When we do so, it turns out that bipedalism is not so rare after all.
So this is one of these like really wonderful full circle moments for me. Dr. Jerry De Silva, who is an associate professor of anthropology at Dartmouth College, and he's a paleoanthropologist and an anatomist. He did some of his graduate work at the University of Michigan, and, and then he had been elsewhere and then came to Michigan with his advisor, Laura McClatchy. He was my TA when I was an undergrad at Michigan, and he was actually one of the really big reasons that I continued in anthropology as a career is he was just, and I, I shouldn't say was in the past tense because he still is. But then for me, he was a really wonderful, supportive person who had this infectious enthusiasm for what he was doing. And it, and it totally like rubbed off on all of the students as well. Like we got super excited about the things he was super excited about. And yeah, the support and encouragement that came from him was like really helpful in solidifying my desire to pursue this field as a career. Because I'm like, if this field is filled with people like Jerry De Silva, then I totally want in to be surrounded by such wonderful human beings. Well, it's not quite like Sharon DeWitt because I met Sharon in grad school and I was her TA, but it's still it's still nice to circle back around to people who got to see us when we were tadpoles and to, to like, basically we're doing this podcast so we can stand in front of them and go, and this yeah. is me. Give like, me like, you know, the acceptance. Listen. I'm a professional now. <laughs> I've got a Notre Dame zip up because I work here. But um, yeah, so this is like one of those, I mean, I don't know if it's an emotional like interview for me, but it is in a way because it is very meaningful for me to be in a position now to interview him. Yeah. Um, and also well, like I, I, I told you earlier in the week that I am now on a dissertation committee with Milford Woolpuff who was my undergraduate advisor. And so that's another, I'm having a lot of like weird full circle career moments right now. The testament there is not only, obviously he trained a shit ton of people, but he's still going, man. I know, I know. I'm going to bring us back though to Jerry. Oh, right. This should all be about Jerry because I adore Jerry and I'm so unbelievably excited to have him on the show. So he has two books out this year not one but two i know um the one that we're not going to talk about today is called the most interesting problem which is an edited volume and like i would love to like have a round table with all the authors in that book Mm. but the one we're actually going to talk about today is called first step how upright walking made us human and just to let you know that one i enjoyed the book but also my cat hecate gave it her stamp of approval by chomping a giant chunk out of the corner of the book jacket. The stamp? It was. I was reading it and she decided to crawl on my lap and then chew on the book. She approved. It was tasty enough to keep chewing until I made her stop. I found this one funny because we've read several energetic books lately and teeth books and they all sort of walk us through here the pond of human evolution. And sometimes I'm like, okay, what more could anyone possibly say in a book that just came out that is new and then I get about a third of the way in and I'm like, ah, oh, shit, I wish I was teaching intro to bioanth again right? so I could fix the things I said mm-hmm. and talk about this. I'm going to totally include a lot of this when I teach fundamentals of bioanth next semester. But also, like, this book comes at a great time in the sequence of having talked about Dan Lieberman's book and about Herman Ponser's book. Like, you start seeing all the lines connecting all the things. And, mm-hmm. and so it's been a lot of fun. But he's also here. Shall I let him in? He is. I saw him flash up and then go away oh you see that too i I only thought the host sees that oh yeah no i saw it too oh look at that lab i know hi jerry oh wait there's a human in front of it (laughs) hi chris hi (laughs) kara hi nice to meet you in person 
Nice to meet you as well. Kara, great to see you again. I was just regaling Chris of you're actually one of the reasons I decided to pursue anthropology as a career. And so this is like one of these like really emotional interviews for me because like you were there at the beginning for me. I was there at the beginning? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I don't know if I can take any credit though. You were a shining star. You you were heading off. As I told Chris, you were incredibly encouraging and supportive. And like one of the big reasons was like, if everyone in anthropology is like Jerry, hell yeah, I want to be in the field of anthropology <laughs> because you were so like, you know, oh I was God, a, what, what have I done? <laughs> I was some sort of like ass kissing, you know, undergrad and like, you didn't have to give me the time of day and support and you totally did. And that it means so much. And I think it's also formed and I'm sure Chris has had similar experiences, but like how I work with undergrads and graduate students and how I approach them because that makes a difference. It does. It turns out being a nice person to your students is, has a positive effect. Who knew? That's right. You get to be on their podcast years later. I just ran some analysis for a paper coming out in our academics issue and turned and, and the data show that supportive faculty, advisors, colleagues, and institutions buffer stress effects. So there you go. And also make people happy. Yeah. <laughs> So, so you got to tell me, is that a floresiensis or an Australopithecine standing on your counter? Oh, yeah. that's, that's Australopithecus sediba. Okay. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the beautiful sediba. It's a composite. It's partially from the boy's skeleton MH1 and what we think is the, the adult female skeleton MH2. Interesting composite. <laughs> Put together a juvenile of one sex and then a, an adult of another. Hey, that's what we do. That's what we do in paleoanthropology. Right? You also have some fancy colors on your cat. Wow. I'm seeing a lot of blue. So the, bl- the blue is when the fossil's black, but I want to show that there are pieces missing. Ah, uh, okay. So yeah, mm-hmm. in Dutu, that's in Dutu right there. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, so uh, after, after I left Michigan, um, or right before I left Michigan, I molded and cast all of Milford's <laughs> collection. I have 10 skulls myself from doing that same thing. (laughs) And then I had students paint them. I had some art students come to the lab and paint them to look as much like the originals as possible. And yeah, yeah, it was really fun to sort of go through that exercise because they all have their own color to them as well. They're all Mm -hmm. their own sort of geological history, their own, you know, flavor. So, flavor. So you're licking the skulls as well now, Jerry. Well, again, again, that's what we do as paleontologists, right? (laughs) Is it a rock or a bone? (laughs) That's right. Now, are you really in your lab, or is this one of those new things you throw up? I'm I'm here. I'm here. I was going to say, because I was impressed with how your finger was actually pointing to the... <laughs> and you didn't see, like, the halo around the figure. The finger. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Anyway, Jared, thank you so much. I mean, you must be busy. You have two books out this year, which is insane. Uh, and, and we and we introduced them just a little bit before we, we brought you on. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast. We really appreciate it. Well, I'm happy to do it thank you so much for the invitation and so the moment i opened your book and i read like the little kind of introductory bit i'm like jerry has already answered the first question we ask on this show every single time which is tell us your origin story and and how you actually got into anthropology because you have a bit of a a wandering journey as well that maybe a lot of people don't know about tell us a bit about that right so i never took a biological anthropology course as an undergraduate i tell my students that all the time that they really don't need to know uh, you know what they want to do with the rest of their lives when they're 
18, 19, 20, 21 years old. Some people do, but, but I didn't. I was studying astrophysics at, at Cornell, and then I was really struggling with the advanced math and the physics. And I switched over to physiology because I, you know, even as a kid, I knew I wanted to be a scientist. I was always asking, you know, those why questions, right? Why, why there are things the way they are and lifting up rocks and logs. And I remember my parents got me this, um, this used telescope at a yard sale and um, looking at the craters of the moon the first time, just, I'll never forget that. It just sort of blew me away that there's this amazing world out there that, that we're a part of um, and it's understandable right? That we can actually figure it out. So science to me was, was pretty special. Um, I just didn't know which science and, uh, and I struggled and struggled and struggled. I ended up getting a degree in physiology. Um, so instead of, you know, learning how galaxies work, it was sort of learning how the cardiovascular system worked. And then I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I graduated, I applied for a bunch of biotech jobs and none landed. And I ended up applying to work at the Boston Museum of Science and I started out part-time there and then got a full-time position. And I rediscovered my love for science there. It, was, it wasn't about answers. It was about the questions you ask. It was about wondering, you know, I wonder why that's happening. And how do we know, you know, you, you hear about a new discovery made and it's, but, but how do we know that? What's, what's, the, what's the evidence? And for five years at the Science Museum, you know, it was all about being curious and, and wondering with visitors who were little kids sometimes, and sometimes it was their grandparents. Um, and so talking to people of all different ages and all different backgrounds uh, about this incredible thing we do as humans, which is wonder about ourselves and wonder about our, our world and then seek evidence to try to figure it out. And that's when I first discovered paleoanthropology was at the Boston Museum of Science. We had our Lyotoli footprint exhibit positioned a little too close to the dinosaurs for my liking. Um, and I thought it might spread misconceptions about, about, you know, humans and dinosaurs coexisting, which we of course know that is not the case unless you're talking about birds, which are, you know, descendants of the dinosaurs. And I asked to move that exhibit to our human biology area. And my boss said, sure, but go and learn everything you can about the Lytoli footprints. And, and while you're at it, read some books on human evolution. Um, and I said, okay. And I took out Ian Tattersall books and From Lucy to Language uh, by Don Johansson. And I was hooked. My God, it, the, the idea that these fossils not only told us about ourselves, but each one, you know, had its own story, right? Each fossil had its own discoverer. Each fossil was an individual and in that we can, we can actually learn about their lives and retell their stories millions of years after they lived them. To me, it was just, uh, yeah, yep, I had found it. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, and so I, I had to quit the museum. It was very sad for me to leave the museum, but I started a new journey uh, in Laura McClatchy's graduate lab, um, first at Boston University and then, and then at, at University of Michigan, which is where I met you, Kara. And so the one thing I absolutely love, sorry, Chris. So our listeners at home can't tell this, but Jerry during this literally picked up a skull and was showing it and like you can hear the enthusiasm. And the phrase I'm gonna use might not really apply, but you still have the wonder and awe, almost like the childlike wonder. <laughs> still like through to adulthood that so many adults end up losing and that was one thing about first steps that I love so much is that like enthusiasm just jumped off of the page like I could still see how much you are amazed by every single fossil you you look at every single time and that you still love it so much I mean I have my cranky days but <laughs> like you know I mean <laughs> 
I love what I do. I, I feel incredibly fortunate um, to have found this, you know, this this occupation. You know, I I get I get paid to travel around the world and study fossils. Like, are you kidding me? And then to teach about it and to and to wonder about about our own origins and evolution with a bunch of students who also are interested in that topic. I, I yeah, I, I I feel incredibly lucky to 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 do this. I want to project on you for a second and see what see what you think because I also used to work in museums before I returned to academia and so thinking of what Kara's about Kara's comment right like my childlike wonder is reserved for oftentimes when I speak to children and I can invoke it when I speak to undergrads my sort of default with undergrads and grad students is a sort of a more snide personality because I think of them as being sort of snide and sarcastic, and I have to sort of draw on my museum educator uh, when I would speak to more general audiences where I dispensed with any of that sarcasm and snideness because it, it never went over very well. Um, so I'm kind of curious as to what you did at the museum and, and if, if there's any relationship there. Uh, I, use, uh, I, use, I call it the U of enthusiasm, and I always say, in museum education, the most enthusiastic people are the third graders and 83-year-olds, and at the bottom is undergrads. And so, um, and I explain it to them, but I, that, that's why I, I'm trying to mirror them, right, in yeah. the classroom. And I wonder if, if you had any resonance with that. I love that. I had not heard that, the U of enthusiasm. I, I, I really love that, and I certainly can see that. So when I was at the, at the Museum of Science, I was a floor educator. Um, I was I, I did a lot of informal interpretation, and so on any given day, I had no idea what I was going to be teaching about. Uh, some days we would pull out what we called a pluck, a heart and lung of a of a sheep that maybe was freshly delivered from the butcher, and we would teach about the heart and lung that day, and we would do a dissection. And maybe you know the next day I would go down to our live animal center and I would pull out a corn snake and wrap a corn snake around my my wrist and go and meet visitors as they were coming into the exhibit halls and talk to them about, you know, well, where, where do you think the tail starts on a snake? That's always a fun one. Um, that a snake is actually mostly body and only a tiny little bit, little bit of tail. Um, or we had what are called glass lizards, which are lizards, but they don't have legs. And so everyone says, oh, look at the snake. And it's, no, it's actually not a snake. It's a, it's a legless lizard. But how do we know that? You know, what is our anatomical evidence for that? And then, of course, you can talk to them about genetics and how it would be more similar to an iguana than to, uh, uh, than to a rattlesnake or something like that. And then some days, right, it would be talking about human evolution. At the museum, we had uh, cotton-topped tamarind monkeys on, on display. And so we spent a lot of time talking about primates and primate evolution, but also about animal behavior studies. And we would have visitors, they would spend about a minute or two observing the monkeys, recording every 30 seconds what the monkeys were doing. And uh, just to get a taste of you know, what a primatologist has to do. And most of them would get bored. And they'd be like, okay, now imagine you're in the middle of the jungle and you have to do this for six months. That's how we learn what we know about these, these animals. Um, and so, yeah, I think what kept me enthusiastic and excited at the museum was that um, every day was something new. And I learned so much. I learned so much more working at the Museum of Science that I did in, in uh, four years at Cornell. <laughs> and, and maybe I shouldn't say that out loud because I teach at, at Dartmouth now and, you know, um, but, oh, every day I was learning from volunteers, learning from visitors. And one of the biggest things I learned was that um, when someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer, the best answer is, I don't know. Like, isn't that a great question? 
And it's not some deficiency on your part that you don't know. It's, it's wow, you asked a great question. Now, either, either I don't know, but, but the scientific community does. So let's do some research to try to figure out the answer. Or you asked a question that no one knows the answer to, and you just hit the scientific jackpot. Like that is, that's a PhD thesis now that you just, you just asked. And, and of course, I don't know is not something that we teach our kids and our middle schoolers and our high schoolers and our college kids to, to say, and we, we penalize them uh, if they say, I don't know on an exam or something. And so I, I struggle with that as, a, as now a teacher that has to give grades um, because I celebrate the I don't know answer to, to questions. I mean, this, this hits home because I, I do that in class a lot. I think originally like when I first started out as a professor, which doesn't feel like being a professor, you still feel like a student. I didn't want to do that, I don't yeah. know, because it felt like I lost authority yeah. in a classroom. And that can be very true for women, especially. But then I just got really comfortable with it. Like, yeah, I don't know, let's find out. And then like, it has become a running joke in almost every class where I hand out PhD ideas. <laughs> <laughs> like, go get your PhD and this, 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 and this, and just keep a running list of all the big I don't knows. Um, I but it. you know, everything you just said about your experience at the museum, you have this passion for education and you're very talented at it. Like you're, you're a good educator and that comes off very strongly in the book, which is here. Uh, and so let's talk about the book, which we have you on the show for. And again, you have two out right now. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about that one first and what inspired it. And then then we can talk about first steps and what inspired that. Sure, sure. So with the most interesting problem, um, I, I, I really like anniversaries. I like, you know, I feel like they're an opportunity to reflect on, on your discipline or you know, uh, or, or, or your marriage or you know, whatever it is. Um, anniversaries to me, I, I think are, are kind of fun moments. And uh, this was probably in 2017. I was looking ahead to, to things coming up. Um, and 2021 was the 150th anniversary of Darwin's Descent of Man. And it seemed to me, and I was thinking initially about teaching a class, that I'll teach a class where we read Descent of Man, and then we read articles. And, and, and you know, what do we know now? Because, you know, Darwin didn't have a crystal ball. Darwin was a scientist and was in interpreting the evidence that he that he had at the time and laying out a series of hypotheses, some of which continue to be supported, but some of which are not. And that's the nature of science. You're going to be wrong about certain things. Um, and then it sort of developed into a book idea. And originally, <laughs> for about 10 minutes, I thought I could write this myself. <laughs> and then I realized that no way that our our discipline has become so specialized and, and, and there are all these incredibly talented science communicators out there that could write about the different chapters that Darwin uh, wrote about in his in his two volume Descent of Man. And so I talked to Alison Collette, who's an editor at Princeton University Press. She liked the idea as well. She thought I should pare back and only focus on human evolution rather than on sexual selection, um, which would have made the book monstrous if we had done that. And then it was a matter of finding a team of people who could write about the different things that Darwin wrote about. And we assembled an incredibly talented group. Alice Roberts, Johannes Haile Selassie, Holly Dunsworth, Augustine Fuentes, uh, Anne Gibbons wrapped the whole thing up. Janet Brown, the historian, Darwin historian, wrote the introduction. And it just ended up being this really fun project, piecing together and, and reflecting on, you know, the state of our knowledge of our field right now uh, through the lens of Darwin. And, you know, he, he, there were a few things he was quite prophetic about and, you know, an amazing scientist, but also as we are as human beings, quite biased. And you see through his writing, his, his white male centric approach to the world and we can take him to task for that and we should do that i think he would he would expect that 
of future scientists, that they would challenge his ideas, as a good scientist would, 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 would recognize. Uh, and so Augustine Fuentes' chapter and Holly Dunsworth especially uh, really challenge his writings about race and uh, about sex differences because he went off the rails uh, when he wrote those chapters. Those are some of the, some of the worst chapters, um, some of the worst writing he ever did. Uh, was in those in those chapters where you know here's a guy who's so focused on evidence and he had the evidence right in front of him and concluded something wildly different and it's not like he wasn't one to to think outside the box either and yet he couldn't do it and it just really for me hammered home the the power of bias and how we have to you know recognize that and reflect on that as much as as much as possible so that that book came out in february of 2021 right at the 150th anniversary of descent of man we plan to have a big gathering at dartmouth to celebrate the <laughs> the launch uh but we are hoping for next year uh, to be to be doing that with with all of our um, chapter writers uh, present for that event. So I love that you are taking Darwin to task. You start off first steps uh, with a lovely review. For those of us who teach bioed, we may come off like a review. For those who haven't read anything for a while, it's a really good recap of where we are now. And then you get to taking some other folks to task. We have uh, a new era of modern, of open science, but we still have some folks out there who are not super open. So I wonder if you could, if you would be willing to talk a little bit about your adventures in getting people to share their data, because you have had some amazing collaborations based on, you know, people barely knowing you and being willing to, to uh, fork over uh, Nary Academy boys fossils like on day one, right? Turkana uh, boy, how, whatever you mm -hmm. want to call them, mm -hmm. and, and then other stories. Right. So, th this other book um, that we're talking about, First Steps How Upright Walking made us human. This has been in the in the works, sort of in my in my brain for a while. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until I was really established here at Dartmouth that I felt comfortable writing this book. But this is a book that I've wanted to, to write for a long time, you know, because my research in in all sorts of ways will intersect with this idea of, of upright walking and bipedalism and how it came to be. And then in the last, you know, 15 years, the incredible discoveries that our field has made and really surprising discoveries of new species of Australopithecus. I think Artipithecus ramidus was surprising in its anatomy. Homo floresiensis, I mean, who could have called that one? Homo naledi. So all these really amazing new discoveries that that fleshed out this story, I think, of, of diversity and variation when it comes to thinking about locomotor variation, different ways of walking in, in the past. And so um, this book was sort of born out of my own research, but then also really being awed by the work that my colleagues were doing, trying to answer this question of, of you know, why we are the way we are and how upright walking uh, shaped that. And some of that, to get to, to your, your question now, some of that was a result of individuals, you know, finding fossils and then recognizing that they alone couldn't bear the, the brunt of the work to, to not only describe the anatomy, but, but then to interpret the function of partial skeletons being being discovered. Yeah, maybe in, you know, decades past, we could have done that. Um, but not anymore. There are too many really talented people in the field doing specialized work that can get you to that answer, uh, or at least closer to some reasonable interpretation of what these ancient fossils were up to, but only if you provide access, only if you sort of open the doors to your lab and say, you know something, 
I'm going to invite lots of people in to interpret, to interpret these fossils. But then there's another step to this, which is, but maybe we're wrong. And so we're going to have to open the door to everyone, even those who are going to try to disprove our ideas, because that's, that's what science ultimately is, is, is going to be about, is, is having a repeatability, other indiv individuals being able to have access to that same material and try to replicate what you did. And do they then interpret the remains in, this, in, the, in, this, in the same way? And so throughout my career, what I've generally found is that paleoanthropology is composed of a, of a number of scientists um, who are uh, as curious as I am, as, as curious as, 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 as little kids are, just trying to figure out, you know, why we are the way we are. And, and we get to work on fossils and we all just love it and we will share fossils. And so I have had very good experiences in this, in this science um, with colleagues sharing material. Um, but there are exceptions. And those exceptions are really, they're puzzling to me. Look, you know, I come from this, from the background of a science museum. I, can you even imagine, you know, talking to some kid about this new fossil? Oh, this is new fossil. And, and it's amazing. And it has this morphology and this shape, and it tells us this. And the, and the kid's like, oh, I want to see it. And you're like, nope, can't see it. Sorry. Sorry, I can't. I can't show it to you. This, this, uh, right? Like the amazing what? thing is, is like I remember my days back in Michigan, like Milford telling these stories. So Milford Wolpuff, uh, who who's still in Michigan, actually, like telling these stories of paleoanthropologists just sitting on fossils for literal decades and not allowing people to look at it. And then that really becomes the question of how do you get at the truth of it, or even hypothesize what what it might be revealing when people keep it quiet and if maybe some sort of field standard should be implemented to kind of prevent this from happening? I don't know. I don't know what the answers are because, um, you know, there are lots of stakeholders here and, and you know, there, there, there are legitimate arguments made that, you know, look, these fossils don't belong to the, to the individuals who find them. They belong to the, the countries where they're found. And if those are the policies that are established in those national museums, then who am I you know, as a as an American scientist, to to, to challenge that and to argue uh, against that, uh, and yet, you know, for the for the sake of the scientific inquiry and repeatability of our of our science, um, I think we can push back uh, against that. And thankfully, there are models out there of colleagues who have who have worked with government officials and established policies of sharing of fossils. And it doesn't have the detrimental effects that we've been warned might happen. For instance, if you share a fossil, then uh, researchers will not come to look at the original. And in fact, it's had the opposite effect. Um, when you get a chance to look at the casts, when you get a chance to look at the 3D scans, you see things that are fascinating and then you even more want to see the original so that you can verify what you've seen and test hypotheses that are generated from that. So, for, uh, Kara, I think a lot about mi my Michigan days as well and how I must have spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, weeks and weeks, staring at Lucy and, and looking at every little piece of a first-generation cast of Lucy that, that Milford Walpole had. And it led to all sorts of ideas. Just seeing those bones you know, uh, allows you to take that next step and ask some questions, right? Oh, I wonder what's going on here. I wonder why the ankle looks like that. I wonder why the hip looks like that. That's where, where scientific questions are generated from is through those observations. And yet now, you know, I, I, what, a, what an incredible opportunity, right? That I got to see Lucy. I took it for granted because right now 
no graduate school or very few, I should say, in, in, the, in the country have the same opportunity to see the skeleton of Artipithecus ramidus or to see an original cast of Solanthropus chadensis. And so we as a scientific community are missing out on those observations. We're missing out on the dozens and dozens and dozens of sets of eyes that would spot something interesting and peculiar and unusual. And, and wow, I wonder why this is that way and not that way. And, and, and you know, to think that the original researchers who found these have noticed it all and have spotted everything there is to know on these skeletons is so arrogant. So I, I, I will never understand finding a fossil, making, making this incredible discovery, and then not wanting to share it with the world and give everyone, you know, Oprah style, right? You get a Solanthropus and you get a Solanthropus and just sharing them with, with um, the research community, sure, but also with science museums and with K-12 schools and, you know, hey, biology high schooler, you want to know what a common ancestor of a human in an African ape might look like? Might, right? We're not sure, but might look like, and you hand them a Solanthropus. Like, figure that one out. It's a fascinating specimen. So I, you know, Chris, I will never understand not wanting to, to share these, these fossils, but, but it's a rare thing. And I think our field is moving in a direction of more open access. And I think, you know, hopefully a couple of decades from now, or even sooner, uh, this will be old news. I mean, I, I, I bring it up and I, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus. Folks can read your book to find out who we're talking about and those in the know know who we are talking about. But I, I think you're right. And I, but I think it's worth reinforcing, right? We're in a like what what is going to change? Well, it's it, it's changing. People, you know, no offense to them, they die off, and and new people grow up, and there has been a paradigm shift. And yeah. I was uh, so full disclosure. Uh, Matthew Berger is a student in my program, so Lee Berger has been yeah. here several times, and will come in from the field and literally draw a sketch of rising star on the chalkboard for our grad students and tell them without having them in hand exactly what they found well before publication. And having heard that story now many, many times, I have heard that the science moved faster. Everyone involved made more money, not less, by sharing everything. Um, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced that open science is, is a model. And having worked in museums, the and also worked in a lot of different institutions, including my own, without the resources to have really good collections because it costs yes. so much to get these casts. I'm 100% on board. And then your work is so specific in that you're looking at, at pieces which require you to have access to everyone's collections, right? If we're going to tell right. this whole story about bipedalism, then you do need someone who has seen everything. And, and I wonder then if you could then let's toggle away from complaining to like some of the cool hmm. things that you have found. Um, I know there are lots of them, but one that jumped out to me was this idea of Artipithecus actually being arboreal, primarily arboreal. Did I read that right? And not a mixture? Yeah, I, think, I think so. Um, you know, I, I think if, I think if you have a grasping big toe and selection is maintaining a grasping big toe as it is in Artipithecus ramidus that, you know, I, I've seen the original Artipithecus ramidus material in, in Ethiopia and you know that that grasp that 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 big toe is very very African ape like and you know this is a good climber um, and and it's up in the trees I think for a good chunk of its of its day if I could you know reconstruct a day in the life of an Artipithecus my guess is it's spending most of its time up in a tree but then yeah when it comes down to the ground I I don't work on hands very much but but I, I 
find the interpretation pretty convincing that there's no evidence that it then is knuckle walking on the ground. But what I, what I do know a little bit about is you know, the shape of a pelvis or uh, the shape of a foot. And it has some of these key anatomies that are important for, for terrestrial bipedal walking as well. Um, and so, you know, if you think about your own foot, for instance, and how it got to be that way, what we can tell from Artipithecus is that the outside of the foot uh, became more human-like earlier in time, and that Artipithecus still retained this grasping big toe, but when it pushed off the ground, it used more of the outside of its foot, which if you try doing this, if you try walking around and just push off the outside of your foot, um, it's not as efficient. You can't take long strides. You're taking these short choppy steps. And so it's not a very efficient way to move, um, but it was good enough for, for an Artipithecus moving from point A to point B on the ground to get to another patch of trees to climb and get itself some food, uh, presumably, or to get away from, from, from predators. But I think what Artipithecus does for us in combination with the sort of other set of bookends we have much further back in time, uh, what we would call the Miocene apes, is to me, it tells the story that maybe upright walking, or at least the, 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 the body form from which upright walking evolved was something that was more upright in the trees. And that this effort we have, we've made for the last century to try to explain how upright walking evolved from a knuckle walker may be the wrong question, because maybe knuckle walking is derived. Maybe that's what evolves in parallel in the chimpanzees and in gorillas from a common ancestor that was actually more upright to begin with, uh, but, but in an arboreal environment in the trees. And so it wouldn't be bipedalism, if this is right, and this is a, this is a hot topic in our field right now, and we really don't have the fossils to know. You know, if you look at the common ancestor six, seven, eight million years ago, we don't have much. Um, but it's really exciting to think that one of the possibilities is that the common ancestor is not, in fact, uh, a knuckle walker. And yeah. so the field's pretty split on this. Can I interject really quick? Because I'm just, since you're mentioning knuckle walking, I am not a paleoanthropologist. I am behind Kara and raised her eyebrow. She's like, really? No, I am not, Kara. <laughs> but, but I PA'd for David Strait when I was in grad school, yeah. who studies wrist morphology. And yeah. I remember him talking about this problem and saying, we couldn't have possibly evolved from a knuckle walker because there's this, because there's a yeah. little thing that locks out and doesn't allow the wrist to bend like this. And so do we know that or are, am I out of date or? No, 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 no. So, so Dave Strait makes a pretty compelling case and others have made a compelling case as well that there are these, these hints in, especially it's in the wrist that would be these, these kind of echoes of a, of a knuckle walking, of a knuckle walking past. Um, and one of them is, is the fusion of a couple of wrist bones that you see in the African apes, but not in orangutans. And the argument is that um, why would this have happened? And we have it too. Why would this have happened unless the common ancestor was a knuckle walker? Um, but what we, you know, what, what we see all the time in in evolution is, is are changes that happen sometimes randomly, sometimes through drift. That really selection or not acting on at all, and maybe this is happening in an arboreal environment, the fusion of these two bones, and then it's pre-adaptive for a knuckle walking uh, hand posture. And so you still could have, you know, either explanation then makes sense uh, in light of those data. And so this is again, one of those situations where if you lay out the comparative anatomy, you know, you got your genetics down, 
you got comparative anatomists saying, okay, we've got we've got chimpanzee and, and gorilla anatomy and bonobo anatomy. Can't forget about bonobos, orangutans and, and gibbons and humans. Okay, what pattern do we see? Um, you end up usually with pretty equal likelihoods that this the common ancestor is a knuckle walker or the common ancestor isn't and knuckle walking evolved independently. Something is going to be evolving uh, in parallel. Uh, given that the genetics have essentially laid out for us who's related to whom. And that's why we need the fossils. Could we have figured out the story of human evolution without fossils? Sure. Right. You, you know, with comparative anatomy and, and, and genetics, we'd get a ballpark idea. But fossils flesh out what actually happened and the pace at which things happened and, 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 and the fact that, you know, bipedalism precedes brain enlargement. You'd never know that if you didn't have a fossil record. What I tell my students sometimes is, is you know, with genetics, sure, you, you would be able to figure out that, that alligators and crocodiles are related to birds, that the sister taxa of birds are the crocodilians. But you'd, without fossils, you'd never know about dinosaurs, right? So, so how awesome is it that we live in a world where fossilization's a thing? And so that's what we're, that's what we're gonna need to answer this question of what did those six, seven, eight, nine, ten million year old African apes, how'd they move? And right now we we really don't know. So I love this for a lot of reasons. And I love this section of the book. And I want to harken back to something you said about Artipithecus that, you know, it got around good enough. And that's something that I, I emphasize with my students so much is that evolution doesn't have a goal. Evolution is just good enough to get you to the next generation. And, and that's really how it works. Uh, but also another thing I do with my students is I lay out all of the kind of absurd human, you know, bipedalism hypotheses from the trench coat <laughs> hypothesis, aquatic ape and all of that. Yeah. And I have them take them apart. Like I don't give them my, my opinion on any of these. Like these are theories. Tell me the pros and cons for each. And I'll be honest, I've been so out of the paleoanthropological world. I have not been as, as up to date about this kind of upper limb supported arboreal bipedalism hypothesis, which is mm -hmm. don't anyone ever adopt that name. Um, <laughs> and, and so like it blew my mind and it makes so much sense. And your book is going to fundamentally change how I run my, my introductory class. And so I very, very much appreciate it. And now I have no idea where I want to go with all of this because there's so much going on. But you also talk about some really interesting things that bipedalism has messed up for us as humans today. And, and this hit me hard because it is, it is allergy season right now. And your comment about the maxillary sinuses draining upward blew my mind, Jerry. <laughs> This is awesome. Yeah, this is awesome paper that I that I came across. I mean, one of the one of the most enjoyable things for me about writing this book was how much I learned. And, you know, because there were there was, you know, maybe about a quarter of this that I was able or a third of this that I was able to write from my own work. But yeah, they're all, you know, I don't I don't study the maxillary sinus. And um, there was this fabulous paper that was done looking at folks with chronic maxillary sinusitis and what works for them. And one of the things that works for them is to get into a prone position uh, for, for, you know, a good chunk of, of the morning, you know, so not, not you know, hours and hours, but, you know, get into a prone position for 20 minutes or so. And it helps drain the maxillary uh, sinus um, because of its orientation. Its orientation derives from a quadrupedal past. And so what have we inherited in, in our bodies? We have not inherited a skeleton that is that that is that is um, optimized for bipedal locomotion. We are modified apes. We we're and apes are modified you know primates, generalized primates. And so 
you know, the maxillary sinus is, is one of these issues that humans can suffer from chronic maxillary sinusitis. You know, hernias are also one of these that, that uh, mentioned quite a bit as a result of, of our bipedal posture. Um, we could get into ch childbirth as well, uh, where the, the changes to the pelvis require rotational birth in the majority of, of, of human births, which um, then how have we solved that? Well, we have helpers during, during birth. Um, so we've solved it culturally, this, this challenge. And then, the, you know, to me, the, the, the absolute nightmare of the human body is the foot. That if you want to have a structure that um, stores elastic energy, that, that can contact the ground, that, that's flexible enough to then absorb forces from the ground and store elastic energy, but then can convert itself to some rigid lever to push off the ground, um, you wouldn't make it out of 26 individual parts, right? If you were taking a, 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 you know, an engineering course and that was your design, you, you'd fail miserably. Um, and in the natural world, we do see feet uh, from bipeds that are more sort of optimized for this locomotion. So what I'm holding up on the screen right now is an ostrich foot. And an ostrich foot um, is, is made of just you know, a few bones. It doesn't have 26 bones, it's got about eight bones. Um, and these are fused together, tarsals and metatarsals. And it's mostly tendinous and it stores elastic energy and ostriches run 40, 45 miles an hour. But humans um, have inherited uh, a mobile ape foot. And over the course of the last six million years, or probably less, because our earliest hominid ancestors were still climbing, like Artipithecus, uh, we have tinkered, or evolution has, has tinkered with that, that anatomy. What I describe in the book is, and what, I, what you know, colleagues and I have talked about, is it's, it's duct tape and paper clips, just holding these bones together, and it makes them just good enough to survive. But evolution doesn't care about your comfort. And so we end up with all these problems, foot problems. We are susceptible to ankle sprains and bunions and plantar fasciitis and hammer toes and, and you name it, there's a problem with, with the foot, you know, and, and, or, or, or you name it and someone, someone has had that problem. And so the foot is, is one of these really vulnerable spots. And yet it's the, it's the icon of a biped, right? That footprint. And yet it's an anatomical nightmare. So it seems so ironic, right? It's like irony on top of irony. So bipedalism comes before big brains, right? Yeah. But uh, and and but walking leaves us with foot pain every day, and yet is good for our brains. <laughs> uh, that was the as someone who focuses on stress and cognition, that was yeah. the most profound part of the book for me. So and I walk every day, right? And I do it for the reasons that maybe Darwin did or lots of other people mm. do, right? Because it helps my helps me think. And yet I have no idea why until reading your book. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I loved researching that part of the book as well, because right, you know, uh, it, you're struggling with a problem, you're trying to, you know, think, think through, maybe it's a scientific problem, maybe it's a, it's a relationship you're struggling with, um, you go for a walk. And you, you finish up your walk and you, you, maybe, you, maybe you have an answer, but certainly you have a clearer head. Um, and the, the mechanism for that, why is that the case, is, you know, is, is sort of a, it's a curious thing. And one of the things that I, that I learned in, in researching the book is that your muscles act as an endocrine organ. And when they're contracting, they release uh, molecules called myokines into the bloodstream. There have been hundreds of them identified. Uh, Kara, you probably know much more about this than I do, so feel free to jump in and correct me uh, at any point. But um, 
there are uh, my kinds that that now are known to target regions of the brain, and they uh, they can enhance they can enhance growth. Um, the hippocampus, for instance, is influenced by uh, myokine or is you know affected by myokine, uh, known as a BDNF or brain derived neurotrophic factor, which has been called a uh, miracle grow for your brain. And you know it's one of these things that it's it's not like not walking is is some default position. I think I think what we need to realize is that if you're a mammal and you want to get food, if you're any animal, if you want to get food, you have to move. And so moving, you know, from point A to point B is, is, is the default. Um, and so these physiological things that happen, these benefits of, of walking again is sort of the, that's the default model. And I think we only see how amazing they are when they're removed, when you don't walk, uh, when we become immobile, um, and, and, and become more sedentary, uh, that's when it's, oh, wait a minute, there are all these things that are part of our physiological system that have these benefits. Um, and they're only benefits when, when you don't, uh, uh, they're only recognized as benefits when there are members in the population that, that don't receive those benefits because they're not moving. So this this connects so well. Chris and I were talking about it in the intro that we had Dan Lieberman on yeah. earlier in the semester about his new book, and we've talked with Dave Reichlin, who has Perfect. been looking at yep. this very specifically, and his student Katie Sayer, who has like an awesome project and really great work coming out, looking at these exact same things, especially looking at cognition, cognitive mm. decline, and physical activity. And so you you put like a really nice evolutionary part into that as well, which I, I think we all very much enjoyed. And like Chris, I mean, the pandemic basically shut down my powerlifting entirely. And so I, I, I went through a pair of walking shoes <laughs> this past year and I haven't done that in years because of the miles I put on. And it's something I'm gonna, I, I still doing, even though I've now finally gotten back to lifting. Um, and it's helped the thinking. Like it, I think a lot yeah. better walking, although I will say weightlifting should be studied more for these exact same reasons. <laughs> but No, um, I agree, yeah. Uh, anyway, so we need to start wrapping up a bit only because our poor producers have to edit these and, and they are graduate <laughs> students and we want to be, you know, you know, very sensitive to their time. Uh, but so I guess, again, you know, the educator side of you comes out so much, but there's the SciComm part of you as well. And you put a lot of effort into your science communication. And maybe you could speak a little bit briefly into why you put effort into something that at least within academia, still is not recognized uh, and rewarded the way it should be. We say as podcast so, producers. <laughs> yeah, <academia>. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, thank you for, for what, what you're doing um, to promote science literacy and science communication. Um, I, I think it is of utmost importance and it's our responsibility um, as scientists to be science communicators, um, I don't see them as being distinct. That if you're a scientist, that the part of your role has to be to communicate to the public what you do and why you do it. Why do you find these, these questions that you ask uh, interesting? Um, you know, post, I, I think about, you know, post-Apollo, if you think about the, 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 the you know, 1960s, um, the age of space exploration, uh, when planetariums were being built Public public schools were building planetariums, right? Science was being celebrated and promoted, um, and then there was backlash. Um, and it's been slowly happening that through the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, 
um, there's been more and more and more uh, uh, anti-science rhetoric um, in the political arena. We've seen funding uh, plummet. Um, it's so much harder now to get a, a federal grant than it was uh, a generation ago of, of scientists. Um, and why is that? Uh, and I think we often uh, blame, we blame the, 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 the public school system. Oh, the teachers are not doing a good job. Well, I've seen the teachers and they work their tails off and they're doing the best they can and they're being underpaid. Um, and then we blame the politicians and okay. Um, I think we need to turn the mirror on ourselves. Um, where is the, the SCICOM been? Where is the, 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 where have the scientists been uh, for the last, you know, I don't know, uh, 30 years, we, we, we sort of gave that role. We said, okay, Carl Sagan, you've got it. Uh, Bill Nye, you can be our science communicator. Uh, Stephen Jay Gould, you can write your, your essays and, and some people will read them. Um, and then we retreated back into our labs and we did our work as esoterically as possible. Um, and then we wrote about it in as jargon filled language as possible, um, where even when I get sent papers to review in my like own field, I have to look stuff up. I'm like, you know, and, and, and I get told by reviewers all the time that, that uh, I write too conversationally. And I'm done with it. I'm sick of it. <laughs> I'm done with it. Um, that if we can't communicate to each other, um, how in the world are we going to be able to communicate to a, to a public who's thirsty for this? They want this. They want to know about, the, uh, about this, this stuff. We just need to get out of our labs or, or we need to invite them into our labs um, slash and, right? So um, sorry, I'm, I'm going off on, on, I'm on a rant, <laughs> but um, it is so important to me that we get into um, the, the public schools and talk to elementary school kids and talk to middle school kids about what we do and why we do it. Um, get into science museums, work with K-12 teachers um, who need resources. And so, you know, I just worked with a, a teacher down, down the road who wanted to teach her kids about evolution. I packed up a bunch of skulls for her and off they went. And so now they're in some school somewhere and, and might a couple get broken? Yeah, but I'll print out new ones. And that can only happen if you have uh, access to, to, to these casts and you can, you can make duplicate, you can make duplicate copies podcasts, right. Especially during a pandemic where people are walking and, and, you know, having podcasts that are, that are accessible. Um, so I think we, I've been so, um, inspired by the, the, the SciComm effort to the last couple of years, last four years, especially have been amazing seeing all of these new efforts, uh, because I think we all recognized, um, at once what had happened um, and, 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 you know, reflected on our role in, in allowing that to occur, um, allowing science to be vilified. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we're pushing back and, and I, I love what I'm seeing. Um, so I think a decade from now, two decades from now, you're going to see the effects as, you know, the, the middle school kids and the high schoolers and the college kids and the, and the undergrads that you're teaching and, they become the informed voting citizens who then are like, hey, wait a minute, science actually is pretty important, you know, and think about how we're going to get out of this pandemic. You know, the incredible work done by uh, scientists and, and now science communicators uh, who are going to be talking about the importance of, uh, and, and not just the importance of, but the, the, the science, the mechanism by which these vaccines actually are working. 
So understanding the mechanism is going to play a large role um, in in getting the po the, the population uh, vaccinated. You can't just tell people to do stuff. Um, you have to explain to them what's happening, um, and 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 trust them that they're going to be able to understand it. So keep doing good work is is the sort of mantra, right? Put it out there. Mm -hmm. Keep doing good work. Uh, I wanna I wanna reinforce what you said about communicating in language that everybody knows. Um, you you have twins. I have triplets who are now seventeen. So wow. hearing reading about your twins and, and you using them meant a lot to me. And I've been dinged many times for writing too much about my family. Um, but that's uh, that that those experiences of raising kids have helped me understand growth and development, certainly. Yeah. Um, but many things. And then um, most people in the world can relate to having families more than they can relate to looking at a fossil if they yes. haven't had access to them. So sometimes those are the things, you know, or whatever that help them relate. So um, yep. I appreciate that. And not that raising twins and putting two books out and um, making casts of all of those skulls doesn't keep you super busy, but maybe you have time for fun too. So we also like <laughs> to know more about the researcher and what else they do in their life. So what what does Jerry De Silva do when he is not doing all of those other many things? Oh, thanks, Chris. Um, I, I so I love I, I'm I love to be with my family. Um, you know, I, I I really I have an amazing wife um, who is just brilliant and 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 witty and kind and she's she's amazing. Um, I, and I met her at, a, at the Boston Museum of Science. You know, there we are again. You know, science museums having a special place in my heart. Um, she was an educator there as, as well. We started um, we started at the Museum of Science in the same day, um, and and met that first day. And so uh, I love my family and spend a lot of time with them. I'm really lucky to live in Vermont. Um, lots of places to hike, and uh, and then when the snow falls, which is half the year <laughs> it's uh we've become a skiing family uh, i didn't grow up skiing at all so this is something i've been i've been learning myself and trying to train my body which is hard to do to train a 45 year old body to do something new but um so lots of skiing and 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 hiking um and i also love sports i, I grew up a, a a boston sports fanatic um the celtics and the red sox and and uh, so now as my kids are getting involved in sports, um, I'm coaching. And so I coach my, my 10 year old daughter's basketball team. And then my sons, uh, my, uh, they're twins. So my 10 year old son's, uh, baseball team, uh, as, as well. Uh, so a lot of, a lot of family related stuff. Um, and, and then, you know, again, true, true to my, my beginnings, I guess, um, I do a lot of work with my local science museum. So I'm on the board of trustees at the Mottshire Museum of Science, which is this tiny little community science museum. Um, but it is, it's wonderful. And, you know, I, I wish for all communities to have their own little science center um, where, you know, wondering about the world is valued and, and it's a place where you can go, where you can ask, you know, questions and, and really learn those skills of science literacy and 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 you know asking those those great questions about why the world is the way it is that is a I'll lot just, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just throw in to be careful coaching because it was coaching soccer that led to me 
kicking a ball and breaking my toe and needing surgery on that not well evolved foot of mine. <laughs> and I don't think we can even count the number of hammies you have pulled. Yeah, oh, no. that is true. Oh, Chris. So many hamstrings pulled. I, I am prone to injury, but I just wanted to throw out that one because it was a foot injury that okay. I still I still live with. So all right, so I'll just stay away from soccer. Then. That's uh, is that the is that the message here? I, I don't because know. Because baseball I mean, has no risk at all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally, I was kicking the ball, the basic thing that you do. It really had to do with being in my 40s at the time, now 50, and the body just being like, wait a minute, it's been 20 nope. years since you did this. <laughs> we we traded off on that that evolutionary train a long time ago. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Jerry, it's been really wonderful to, to catch up on what everything you've been doing, which is a whole hell of a lot. Uh, and it's been really wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you, Kara. Thanks, Chris. This is this so much fun.